data, artificial intelligence, the metaverse, crypto and Web3, and quantum computing are just a few of the technology innovations that are changing the way we live, work, and experience the universe. I am your host, Ganesh Padmanabhan, and this is Stories in AI, a podcast where we explore the various facets of technologies like AI, its impact on individuals, organizations, and the society. You will hear from a variety of experts and practitioners, their personal stories, their best practices, and advice to put technology to work. I hope you enjoy this engaging conversations. Now, before we begin, a note about our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Experian, whom you may know as the Consumer Credit Bureau, but they are at heart a data company. When you're buying a car or home, sending your kids to college, or borrowing to grow your business, Experian is most likely helping you behind the scenes. They unlock the power of data to make better decisions, get access to financial services, and to prevent crime, unlocking a whole world of opportunities for individuals and organizations. Find out more at Experian.com. You all are going to love this episode. In this episode, I speak with Joseph Sirosh. Joseph was recently the chief technology officer of Compass, the real estate company. He managed the entire engineering organization there. And, you know, they just went IPO in 2021. And prior to that, he was the head of, uh, um, he was a corporate vice president at Microsoft, head of AI, leader of the cloud AI platform, uh, launched several of the cognitive services, the bot frameworks and stuff, and also led the data group, databases, big data, machine learning, and so forth. Prior to Microsoft, he was also um, uh, at Amazon, and uh, he was the head of the global inventory platform, set up the consumer business, and then he's a PhD in um, uh, neural networks in, uh, from the University of Texas, go Hans, and we just had an amazing conversation. I mean, we dived so deep into so many different areas, how where the world is with AI and how today the the age of generative AI is like how Bill Farrell says, a room without a roof. And, you know, what does it mean for creatives? What does it mean for engineers? And what does it mean for uh, citizens in the world? So fascinating conversations. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you'll appreciate and enjoy this too. Don't forget to subscribe. Joseph, welcome to Stories in AI. How are you today? Very good. Thank you, Ganesh. And it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And um, I can't uh, can tell you how much, uh, how many requests I've gotten from the audience of the show to get you on the show like over the last year. Uh, so we're a year old, and we focus on AI, but also the peripheries of it. So Thanks again. Why don't you kick us off with your uh, your personal story? Who is Joseph Sirosh and what's your background? How did you get to where you are today? And just give, give us a little color. Um, thank you, Ganesh. It's uh, fun to be on this show. So thanks for inviting me. Um, so I'm really an AI geek in some ways, right? So I, I got a PhD in neural networks when um, neural networks were just getting exciting in the 90s. You know, before machine learning came in with support vector machines and, you know, yep. took away all that neural network audience away in one way. And then, of course, we have had a resurgence. Oh, so my, yeah. yeah, you know, it's very interesting. 
you know, my very first job after my PhD was uh, at a company called HNC Software, which was doing credit card fraud detection using mm. neural networks. Um, remember, AI has been mostly driven by the data of that time. So at that time in the 90s, the high quality data that was exploding was financial transaction data, like credit card transaction data. And there was a lot of opportunity to apply machine learning or neural networks to yep. help do things like credit card fraud detection or bankruptcy prediction in real time. So that was my first job. And I was a data scientist. I was and, building... and you were, uh, and you're a longhorn before that, right? You did your I was a longhorn at UT, right? And right. my, you know, at that oh, time, my on. PhD was in representation learning, really representation right. learning in the visual cortex. And, you know, I was learning, you know, for example, lateral connections in the visual cortex, which are like attention mechanisms, yeah. right? So uh, you were learning the attention weights as well as the receptive fields of the uh, of the visual cortex. Yeah, so it was very exciting. But you know, then when you went to the industry, the applications were all in financial services. Yep. Um, I spent about nine years there, and I at that time it was very creative at this company called HNC Software. We did DARPA projects. Um, in 2000, for example, we did a project on bio warfare detection, which was really wow. detecting, you know, minimally mutating and maximally conserved sequences in DNA, uh, so that you could use those as um, uh, diagnostic kits. So the PCR was just emerging, and you could yeah. put these snippets on a on microarrays and you could do diagnostics, see what viruses or bacteria were infecting you. So it's sort of this, we are talking 22 years ago almost. So we had a, you know, a DARPA program for that. And there we were applying tools like probabilistic context-free grammars to detect the signature sequences. Really fun work. Uh, I then went on to Amazon in 2004. Uh, I was... Uh, hired to build the trust and safety in at scale in Amazon for fraud detection, fraud detection. for trust and safety in the seller platform. I was affectionately called the first VP of fraud prevention uh, or fraud <laughs> at Amazon. Um, anyway, so then I had a, a, a fun nine year uh, at Amazon. And towards the end, I was very passionate about machine learning and the cloud. And the cloud was just emerging. And it felt like if you could have machine learning APIs in the cloud, well, then you had this opportunity to make every software application intelligent. Yeah. And uh, so that was a dream. And Satya Nadella at that time, he this is before he became CEO, he was um, uh, in actively recruiting. And I ended up joining him, reporting to him, building Azure Machine Learning. That was my passion project. Um, then I ended up, yeah, it was very exciting. And the, the goal was to be able to deploy machine learning models as APIs with one click. So REST APIs. This was even before things like AWS Lambda was there. So yeah. could you uh, create one click uh, ways of putting models and associated variable computations uh, in into REST APIs and then APIs could be called from software application. Um, and that was really uh, uh, exciting. I then went on to run uh, SQL Server, Big Data, Machine Learning, a lot of these things together. Um, and then I was briefly the CTO of AI at Microsoft. And then I encountered another passion project, which was you know, building platforms in industries. So you know, you, you, we, were seeing, we were seeing platforms like Airbnb and yep. Uber. And you know, it felt like the you know, next 10 years would be all about industry transformation with platforms. 
And so I joined Compass uh, and uh, being the CTO, building a platform for real estate transactions end to end. You know, if we could build a SaaS platform that handled real estate transactions end to end. Um, in this case, the customers were agents, like you know, drivers are customers for Uber, uh, hosts are customers for Airbnb. The same way, customers here were real estate agents, and you know, built that out. The company went IPO in 2021, April. Um, and so it was a great three and a half year journey. Um, so I'm actually now going towards another exciting opportunity. Um, so we'll see Soon how that to be goes. announced. Yeah, no, it's, it's Soon pretty to be amazing. Yes. <laughs> it's pretty amazing that background and that common thread around how you started off with like, you know, transactions and transaction processing and then going into machine learning and realizing cloud will be that actuator to get machine learning happen at scale. And it's fascinating. Yes. I mean, if you think about if cloud computing didn't happen, machine learning would still be in the research labs. And, you know, and most of the data science and machine learning folks will be spending time building infrastructure so you can test your, you know, your hypothesis better. Right. So uh, it really unlocked that whole value. And it's interesting, you know, this whole notion of platforms, industry platforms, as you said. Right. And uh, I would love to get a little bit deeper on like the compass work that you guys did. I mean, completely revolutionized real estate. And there's now a lot of different players who are also trying to do and, not to mention Zillow tried its own version of it and uh, didn't really, uh, you know, work out the way it is. But, you know, talk to me a little bit about it before we go into AI as a thing. But this notion of industry platforms, why do, mm -hmm. why is it relevant to, for industries to have a platform at the industry level? Why can, you know, like Amazon or AWS or um, um, uh, Microsoft's Azure is a great computational platform, right? So draw the differences for me between that versus an industry platform and why is that important? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So let's step back a second and uh, let me take a concept um, called market networks. Okay, there's an excellent blog that uh, NFX uh, has written about market networks and what are market networks? Like social networks bring people together for social interactions. Yep. Market networks bring service providers for the market interactions. So it could be a real estate agent working with a title and escrow company, with an uh, inspector, with uh, a mortgage broker. So if you look at industries, industries are made up of a lot of service providers who are actually in most industries disaggregated disconnected with their own tool sets. And what industry platforms can do is to bring the power of the cloud and the ability to integrate the service, service providers through APIs and create end-to-end -end workflows with you know, standardized data, with systems of record, with the SaaS tools uh, promoting each step in the workflow so that the workflow gets conducted in a very reliable, trustworthy fashion across the chain of service providers. It's not just any single service provider being trustworthy, but the entire workflow happens in a platform. And that really changes the fluidity of how work gets done and the, enables the digital transformation. And that's what's truly exciting about platform building. And now when you do that, of course, you end up getting incredibly rich digital data, which you can now apply AI and automation techniques to make this workflow go smoother, more trusted, 
faster and then spin a flywheel around it, create better experiences, create more traction and adoption, create better data, which feeds back into the automation of it. And that's really the exciting thing. And if you look at today's world in, in almost every industry, you know, can take real estate, healthcare, any of these, the biggest challenge to making the next step change in those industries is the disintegrated nature of the ecosystem there. And that's what we can conquer with platforms. That's amazing. And uh, one, one nuance, it's actually a beautiful explanation, and I will check out and I'll put that for the audience, the NFX blog around it. Um, so, to, you know, is workflows more critical in these platforms or is data more critical or does it matter? I think they are one and the same. At the end of the day, the workflows are driven by data being transmitted across service providers to enable the specific work to happen. Now, if you take a real estate transaction, there is a listing that is describing the property to be sold. That is actually being marketed. That is the uh, listing that is then the foundation of an appraiser creating evaluation for the property. And then that's the data that will go into a title and escrow company and, and so on. So it that kind of data needs to be transmitted and it should be augmented and all that. Now, the question um, perhaps is, is the aggregation of that data in one place more important or is it just the records being transmitted? I think you know the aggregation of data is what allows you to create incredibly efficient prompting, the accurate AI predictions, and you know maybe forecasts of what will happen and so on. So both are important. So workflows are enabled by analytics. Uh, workflows uh, transmit data. You know, you've got to bring both together. Awesome. That's amazing. That's a really good explanation. Um, let's talk AI, you know, the industry. Where in the world is AI today in the industry? I mean, give me your, you know, Joseph's view of the land, right? Yeah, look, uh, the more uh, progress has happened in AI in the last five years than in the 50 years before that. Yeah. And it's just an exciting, absolutely exciting time for AI. So the biggest step change in AI in the last few years has been uh, the emergence of self-supervised learning. Now, until recently, like our limitations were training data, annotated training data, so you could have supervised learning. Yep. Well, you know, you could have reinforcement learning if you had a very good environment which would provide you feedback. But other than that, you really had, are at the mercy of uh, that training uh, of, of training yeah. data. And self-supervised learning sort of took the lead off of that constraint. Um, it's sort of like operating in a room without a roof, like the, yeah. <laughs> the song Happy. Right? Yeah. I, I, uh, I read that in your blog, the latest blog. Yeah. And we'll talk about that too, but go ahead. That's right. That's right. And, and so the ability for large language models to go after all the data on the internet, whether it be code or image or you know, text, of course, and in all languages, and then learn, the, uh, learn from the civilization's creativity um, that has just been amazing. And what is actually great along, uh, uh, that came along with that is a fairly general purpose approach to learning from any type of data, um, including not just text data and image data, but even bioinformatic sequences. Like you can learn from protein sequences. Now, there's AI that is generating proteins 
And so those proteins are the substrate of life. And so if you can generate proteins, then, well, you know, you could potentially revolutionize so much uh, in not just healthcare, but environment and everything. Um, and so that's what's super exciting about AI now, which is there are general tools available. They're able to learn from data that we were never able to tackle with AI before. And even more interestingly, these capabilities are showing emergent behavior, whether GPT-3 learning to code. Now we can specialize that and become you know, Codex uh, or GitHub Copilot or Replit.ai. Or now uh, there is this startup called Adept.ai founded by the you know, inventors of the Transformer who have just shown the ability to to operate um, on software screens and websites and just converse with them in natural language and just do your work on a computer um, using AI. Those are all incredible, exciting, and I can only start to imagine what might come when we build upon these in the next five years. That is awesome. So, so on the research and the innovation side of AI, definitely it's open. I mean, you, you, I love the, the, we got into a room without a roof right now with, uh, with, with, with self-supervised learning and the transformer models. And it kind of democratizes a lot of those approaches that were used by the large language models and, and now is available, like transfer learning, few-shot learning, all those stuff too. Um, but where is the industry today? I mean, who is using it? Who's actually realizing value from this? And you know, how do you see that play out over the yeah. next time? Um, excellent, excellent question, Ganesh. And so it's so new industry is behind in the large, right? You know, clearly where you can use this is in areas that are extremely well digitized already. So uh, I'm sure Google's using these capabilities in search and YouTube yep. and, you know, a tremendous amount of this kind of work that will be done in you know, video environments, whether it be, you know, TikTok or, um, you know, Netflix or uh, any number of those things. Um, I think that uh, the a ads definitely. The areas which have already been highly digitized with high quality data, tremendous amount of organized, unstructured data, they're all going to be the ones to benefit from very first. Um, uh, and the, you know, platforms that we already use, whether it be an iPhone or all of these things will become dramatically more usable uh, uh, with, with these capabilities. But a few other interesting areas. Uh, I actually think content generation is going to be completely transformed, whether it be creating marketing or ad copy or new yeah. videos, short clips. Uh, I think AI enables a content creator in very powerful ways, amplifies them, creates scale. So you'll have incredibly compelling content being created by large numbers of creators, uh, you know, and I can expect an order of magnitude um, change in marketing, marketing content creation. Now we may like it or not, but I think uh, it empowers you know creative artists in uh, tremendous ways. It empowers you know copywriters. It uh, and AI generated articles are going to be much more common. Even I used a tool for my own blog to make my writing a lot better, um, and that a tool called WriteSonic, which you know was uh, a company started by a small a number of young engineers playing around with GPT-3, right? And it's creative. So that's uh, another area. Um, 
what I think also uh, in the next five to 10 years, I believe AI can really, really help in uh, inventing new types of drugs and proteins. There were a couple of Nature articles recently from the David Baker Lab. Uh, I myself am on the board of a company called Absci, which is using AI to develop uh, antibodies uh, and validate them. I think the dream of, you know, in silico drug discovery, meaning purely computational drug discovery, as opposed to creating drugs in wetware labs, that dream is likely to come to fruition in the next five to 10 years. Yeah. I could go on. And, and I mean, obviously, clinical trials is an area where AI could make a tremendous amount of difference in, in just making it faster, taking away the drudgery oh, and the yeah. heavy lifting associated with it, innumerable applications like this. That is awesome. No, it's it's interesting. And, and, you know, talking about the whole, and you wrote about this in your new Substack blog that you just started. And, it's, you know, for the audience, just if you want to uh, hear about or, you know, hear Joseph's thoughts on a regular basis, go subscribe, go to Substack, and I'll put the uh, thing in the, in the show notes. Um, you talked about an age of generative AI, the whole notion of content creation, right? From art to um, uh, things. So, one, I mean, this is primarily driven by the innovation coming again from the large language models, right? And it's now proliferating across multiple areas in this thing. I mean, even like including things like in in silico duct discovery, right? So where you can actually, you're basically, you can generate new structures of protein, match it against genes to see whether it's going to be any, any, uh, any reactions that is positive in nature. Talk to me about that whole notion of what does this really mean for, I mean, we'll get to creatives in a second. But what does this age of generative AI really mean? Does it really mean that we, we don't have to you know, do any of the drudgery that we did so you can just have an AI just do the work for you in general? Uh, maybe eventually, but we're not there yet. So talk to me about this age of generative AI, the room without yeah. a room. Yeah, no, happy to. <laughs> well, I think of it as the ability to learn from humanity's creativity. Okay, so that's a big statement, and let me explain what that means. Um, a large language model can now learn from all the data on the internet and make surprising discoveries about how to code, given a natural language prompt, generate code. A large language model, or um, in fact, graph neural networks can now be used to learn from databases of protein sequences and generate new proteins that don't even exist today that might be great antibodies or that might be great drug treatments. So you're basically learning from our scientific discoveries curated in large data sets like protein sequences and learning the patterns from it and generating new, right? And generating large number of candidates. Um, you can learn from engineering designs that humanity have created and have generative engineering design, create new architectures, create new structural concepts, create new car bodies or shapes based upon what we have. So this ability to learn from what we already have and build something new at this scale, you know, create something, generate something new, really didn't exist in a general enough way until now. Mm -hmm. Now we've had, by the way, simulation capabilities in physics, yep. right? When, you know, we can have in the, in the world of science, you know, 
where mathematical models could work, you could mathematically create simulated environments. Today, now we have an AI-based environment to create, not simulations, now it's the next step, that's a generative AI, where mathematical models could not go. And so in some ways, they maybe are side by side, can have mathematical simulation and generative AI. They're sort of side by side. But this, this second capability amplifies existing human knowledge and existing human creativity in ways that only humans could do before. You had to be an expert in a particular field and then dream up new ways of creating some new protein or a new design or a new thing. And generative AI now amplifies that capability. That's what's exciting. You know, um, it's interesting. And I, I wrote some notes on several of these things. I mean, it's, 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 it's fascinating that with the world that we live in, but it raises the question is you're really, what you're doing is you're democratizing creativity or making creativity accessible. Well, I could be, uh, as long as I know how to actually write code, you know, be able to use and leverage some existing libraries and large language models, I could be the next, next Picasso, right? I mean, I could be the next, you know, could be, right? There's a huge uh, variation on this. Does that really mean when you play it out, you project it out, the only noble pr profession in the world is going to be software engineering or machine learning? Yeah, that's a good question, Ganesh. Look, I think what has happened when technology has emerged is people who are already experts or are already very good become even uh, more capable, right? You amplify everybody. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not sure that democratization means a great leveling at all. Yeah. Uh, reality is in the world, there is a parity of skills. People who are much higher in their skills will leverage these technologies even more and be, you know, like Picasso squared, right? Or, you know, Picasso to the power 10. And I think that is what the more likely outcome is. And in some ways, you know, we may not like it, but what actually happens very often is the Pareto becomes steeper. Mm -hmm. And what happens is uh, talented people become even more uh, productive, even more capable of creating magical things. And uh, you know, people who are you know, dramatically less talented, even though they get more access to things that previously talented people could do, their you know, uh, abilities are still you know, substantially differentiated because you know, talent still matters. And that's true about not just AI, but every technology. No, it's, it's, you know, the one thing that makes me sleep well at the, uh, about this topic, because, you know, like you, I've been an AI and, you know, you always keep thinking about this. What does the future hold is, I mean, like in historically, every time, you know, people complain when the steam engine was invented or the automobile was in, invented and stuff, there's all these function changes that happened that caused definitely in the short run, a small part of the society get displaced, or they'll suddenly find themselves like, I'm not skilled enough to take advantage of those things. But given the fact that we're so early in this journey, right? What it also provides is an opportunity for smart entrepreneurs who do actually say, how do I make that accessible for everybody? And that could, you know, that's like, you got to get into the minds of people, how they think, right? Um, and obviously there's going to be a part of the society that, or, you know, organizations, like I, I just saw that, uh, I think Getty Images put out a statement uh, yesterday or so, right? So it's, it's the classic Kodak moment for yes. uh in generative ai right so they're like oh you cannot upload any images that is generated by an ai i'm like 
the dumbest thing you can do right now, right? So uh, <laughs> rather than embrace it. So, but but it's actually this whole, there is also the same debate that's happening. And there was this Colorado artist competition, yes. a painting competition where an AI generated art won the first prize and everybody started getting an uproar. And I think it, it forces people to embrace technology. I mean, like it or not, right? I think that's the, the, the only thing that I would, you know, um, call out is like, you know, when we live in a world of individual choices and stuff, but you won't have a choice not to use technology as an individual or as an organization if you want to be competitive, right? If you're in the business of earning a living or making money, it's going to be almost imperative to actually use technology as a foundational platform to, to help amplify what you have, right? But truly enough, I think, you know, just putting a bow on this topic or discussion is like AI is our opportunity to really amplify the human creativity and then like like think about what you said like learn from the the best i mean today we can you know imagine sitting down with socrates and having a intellectual conversation which is possible today all you need is a large language model and run all the socrates work on it put a chatbot interface on it boom you now have a, a conversation with socrates if you want to right so that it opens up that window and the opportunity and it's obviously going to be those who will embrace it are going to be more successful than the ones who reject it, right? Um, so, and and Ganesha, one thing I, uh, to amplify that is what I have found is when I interact with Socrates or when I look at it, it the AI generative AI almost helps me think new thoughts. It actually stimulates my creativity as well. Yeah, for uh, sure. And yeah, no, it's it, so. Maybe there is a tool here that is an assistant for your creative mind. Um, I said generative AI is the rocket ship of human creativity. And I think it really is true. It actually amplifies your own ability to be creative. Um, And as you've seen in Stable Diffusion, when Stable Diffusion came out, in the span of a month, you think about the incredible amount of creativity that it spurred on art and even video yeah. generation and all the Twitter thread. It just stimulated so many people, and I think that 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 stimulative effect is there as well. No, I you know I like I I, I have my Google Colab open with the Stable Diffusion thing. I'm trying to you know it's it's amazing what it really opens up, and you know coming you know one of the things like you know AI and automation has this opportunity to really elevate the human condition, right? Which is like, I don't want to go worry about paying bills and getting on websites and shopping things. I want to think about something, ask somebody to do it and have that thing to go do it. But human resources are expensive. So that's where technology comes in. And you can almost everybody should have a a Jarvis suit around them, you know, for, for, you know, to autonomize their life. I mean, uh, that's, that's the big goal. And that's the opportunity with AI. Now, Two other topics on that on that same note. One is a lot of hype here, a lot of things that are future, a lot of things in research, and trickle down effects happen into production and into actual platforms and use cases in industry. When you look at the market today and say, "What's hype? What's real? What is still not possible? What are some of those things that people will, you know, sell you snake oil on?" And you know, what's real? What's not real? Where where is the industry actually at today? A lot of innovation on the, um, and one one last thing I'd say on that is like, I had um, our, our uh, friend, I think probably a mutual friend, Gurdeep Paul, on the mm-hmm. show last week, mm-hmm. and uh, he he made a statement in the in the in the show was like, hey, I think you know AI has been primarily run by academics and researchers at least over the last five to six years, right? I mean, 
debated or not, but it's more from a perspective of saying it's it's what that translates to is people or organizations that can afford to have deep researchers get the benefit of actually doing it. Obviously, you talked about you know creating the pools of data and the quality data. So who have been digitally in the forefront, digitally native companies, they have the ability. And you, you took the examples too, but you know it, it, there and then there and then there's the rest of the market, right? So for them especially, right, what is real, what is attainable, and what is not today, right? Give us a view of that. Yeah, no, it's an excellent question. Look, I think uh, I'm reminded of the statement, the future is already here, just unevenly distributed, right? For sure. Gibson. Um, I think uh, the distribution problem of AI in terms of accessibility for uh, the vast majority of enterprises is a big challenge. Now, if I may tell a story, uh, I was reminded that you know, very early on in the 20th century, when electric motors were first invented, uh, there was this big uh, effort in manufacturing where people went ahead and said, okay, how shall we harness electricity for manufacturing? And they evaluated electric motors against what they had at the time, which was these uh, steam engines with these incredibly long crankshafts that ran through the factory and, uh, you know, other small machines running with pulleys and belts connected to the crankshaft and so on. And when they evaluated the new electric machines against that, they found that it was more efficient for them to run in, uh, run with the steam engine. And it actually was cheaper, you know, and retooling it would be extremely expensive. They could, most manufacturing companies could not find any advantage whatsoever in switching from a steam engine to, to electricity at the time. Yeah. But guess what happened in the next 20 years? In the next 20 years, every company that stuck with the steam engine died. There was like the biggest uh, sort of mass extinction in manufacturing ever. Um, and what turned out was that electric motors had this incredible ability to be very small and in every machine locally with its own locally tuned characteristics and with just a central distribution of electricity instead of central distribution of power through a crankshaft, you could actually control lots of machines and optimize the manufacturing workflows and the flow of goods and so on. And it changed the efficiency of manufacturing in such profound ways that people could not actually address in that initial study of, hey, is steam engine more efficient than an electric motor, right? Because yeah. that was a very narrow view. Yeah. Something very similar happens in today's world. Um, AI brings power uh, in ways similar to the electric motor. Uh, and when you look at it at the macro scale of, hey, is AI going to allow me to do healthcare better than just doing software uh, SaaS tools with rule-based systems? Well, you'll find it hard to create an argument why, why AI is better. But when you actually put AI into production in, in, in uh, like in the early 20th century manufacturing companies, you find untold new ways of creating outcomes that are dramatically more impactful and more efficient. I think that's the, that is the opportunity and a challenge of this time. Absolutely. I love that. You know, AI has a distribution problem 
not an innovation problem for sure. Correct. And 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 I love the way you you, you framed it, right? And it, absolutely, AI is the electric motor of the nine, the nineteen twenties. And I think um, what it does is, I mean, like I you know just amplifying that point you made. Is that like, you know, and, and you got to get to a point, like today, nobody talks about electric motors. I mean, of course, it took 80 years, but then the compounding effect of technology and where we are, I mean, things have, the, the telephone took 50 years to get into 50 million households. Angry Birds took like seven days, something like yeah. that, right? So right. <laughs> the compounding effect of technology goes on. But I think what I see personally, when from my vantage point, when we actually think about it, it's like AI is going to become more invisible. So we won't talk about AI 10 years from now. Right. right. It's going to be a fabric of computing or computational thinking or even generation of ideas and content that's going to be under the surface and embedded in all the different processes and things that we do. Uh, it's going to be a fascinating future for sure. Uh, yeah, completely agree, Ganesh. I mean, today we don't think about microcontrollers as being in every print, <laughs> every device or, or DSP, uh, right? Digital signal processing is another example of a technology sort of similar to AI. Yeah. And it's there everywhere, in, in, in our microphones, in every every place. And we don't think about it. So AI will uh, totally be invisible in many, many applications. And it won't be, it's another technology at the end of the day. It's not truly artificial intelligence, right? And I, I don't think of it as artificial intelligence, really, um, uh, yeah. although we use the term AI quite a bit. Yeah, it's nothing artificial about it. It's, it's just like, it. it's yeah. it's augmenting your intelligence at best, right? So That's I think, right. uh, um, no, it's it's fascinating. Now, so, so how can organizations really embed that as a core in their transformation journeys? Maybe you start off, Talking a little bit about, and I think you know your your Compass experience is amazing, right? From that, but I'm sure you were at Microsoft and the company was transforming, and how you're thinking about it too. And you, I'm sure you worked with many companies, organizations, and stuff. So lay out some characteristics of organizations that you've seen that have successfully navigated a transformation journey. Number one, and then you know then go into what should the rest of the world do? How do you bridge that distribution gap for the industry? Yeah, you know, very uh, interesting question. I, I I don't think I have all the answers, but I can draw parallels. Take a look at the IT revolution or the cloud computing revolution. It's actually in many ways potentially similar, right? How did how are enterprises now adopting the cloud and SaaS services and going on a transformation away from data centers and being centered on them? Uh, again, you can see um, industries and enterprises at different levels of maturity in adopting cloud yeah. computing and SaaS. And the same way you will see different levels of maturity in adopting AI. And I think the characteristics of those companies are uh, a, a few uh, innovators in those companies who see the future, who get the championship of the executives, who then are able to take specific areas and apply these capabilities and build organizations and show success in that, and then bootstrap off of that and you know show the the transformations capable, just like you know electric motors change manufacturing uh, plants. You know how do you change something like that? I think the ability to bet uh, for executives to bet on a few very practical innovators in their companies and give them the uh, the funding and ability to go build out those things in specific areas and take uh, companies to the future. I think that is what's most important in existing companies. Um, and if it's not an existing company, I mean, in pretty much every area, 
I think we will see a new breed of startups, uh, most likely SaaS startups, which actually embed AI deeply and create that next generation market network in every industry who will now disrupt existing companies. And those uh, disruptions will either uh, really change the company. Uh, I mean, like have you know, a company uh, go out of business and be replaced, or those disruptive companies will be acquired. Um, by the way, even though it's not in the phase of AI, one you know really interesting example to talk about is Adobe acquiring Figma. Figma. And Figma came out of nowhere, and you know my own team at Compass used Figma, and it was an incredible, delightful collaborative tool. You know, and we did not see uh, like Adobe, Adobe InDesign, or others as that future, right? So we bet on Figma, and Adobe just paid twenty or rather twenty billion, yeah, yeah, twenty billion, right? Is is the price uh, for they called it for Figma, and that's an example, uh, uh, and there'll be more such examples, but AI enabled. Hmm. Interesting. That is awesome. So, um, you know, a few, few things on that, like the, the Figma story is incredible. And, you know, to know, I, I actually did a deep dive trying to understand Figma as a company and realized they founded the company in 2011. They right. did a private beta and then an extended beta. They didn't make any money until they were a million dollars in revenue in 2017. Right. Yes. And then they went to, so million to four and a half million to something like 10 or 12 million to 70 to, they closed 2021 at a hundred and something, 100 million, 112 million. And they're on track to do 400 plus million in 2022. And they may approach, they may approach a billion next year, right? And I think the hockey stick is just incredible. Incredible. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, you know, lessons there in company building and the long run and things like that too. But I think it's fascinating what you just said, right? Which is like, how do you really, look at, you know, ways to, I mean, you're either going to disrupt the industry or you're going to get disrupted, right? There is no, uh, well, you know, there's the happy path, which is you try to be the disruptor and you at least will stay alive if you, if you're successful in at least half of what you're trying to do. Um, one of the things that I, you know, we often hear is the, the challenges around transformations and driving large scale transformations in companies is less about technology. It's more about people, processes how do you get everybody i know you you talked about that you know drawing paddles telling stories you know convincing people to go do it but what kind of organizational structure or uh, um, even processes if you will in your experience will be largely beneficial for driving a large-scale transformation right how do you how do you move a 800 pound gorilla you know which is tied to their you know particular way of doing business and now you're saying i got new technology that i'm going to whitewash all over you? It's a great question. Uh, it reminds me of a quote from Thomas Kuhn, who was one of the you know, incredible innovators on the history of science. And um, he, as he had his quote, provocative one, which said, all scientists never change their minds, they just die. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, um, it, it's uh, an interesting thing to think about sometimes, uh, which is sometimes ex- extremely established successful business models. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not I'm necessarily saying it's our mindset, extremely successful business models. It's just very difficult for that business model to transform itself. It was very difficult for Polaroid and Kodak and you know all of those companies because the type of innovation that is coming at you from a digital camera or a, a digital camera embedded in an iPhone 
is so different and so alien in many ways that it's just very difficult to incrementally transform yourself into that space. Yep. So what very successful companies have done uh, in this area is to create entirely new subsidiaries that are actually going after something very disruptive. Uh, when Amazon went after creating AWS or you know, uh, when Google acquired YouTube or when Microsoft acquired Minecraft or, you know, or you know, went into GitHub. I mean, so companies have ended up creating uh, either on their own subsidiaries that are uh, very focused on the, a disruption um, so that there is a group of people there who are thinking in that new model and building out in that new model versus being tasked also with the incredible human challenge of convincing an established business model and all of the infrastructure, supporting infrastructure around it to change and shift to something new. And remember, when you think about an established business, it's not just the people who are operating the business, it's uh, finance partners and people who quantify you know, future for cash flows and analysts who are looking at the business externally. And there's so much gravity around a particular established enterprise that it, sometimes that transformation is incredibly heavy. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, we should give up uh, on transforming existing business. It's just that the challenge is just very, very heavy. So sometimes you really have to create pods that are incubated to create uh, success in a new way of operating a new way of thinking. That is awesome. What's, uh, it's, it's very clear advice. Uh, shifting gears, um, if you're a kid coming out of college right now and you see the world changing in front of you, the age of generative AI and automation is upon us and stuff, uh, where do we start? What you know? Where do they start? What do you recommend? I think, uh, you know, you start by just um, being super, a, a super tinkerer, right? I think you tinker, you, you really learn by doing, you play in the field. And that I think is super important. I think my biggest advice to people are, don't hesitate to be very, very resourceful, very, you know, uh, oriented towards tinkering. Um, I think the, uh, the rate at which you experiment is what is going to actually drive your rate of progress and innovation. Um, and also, uh, there's a famous saying by um, the, you know, I think the former head of MIT Media Lab that the rate of, if you, if you want to increase the rate of innovation, uh, you have to reduce the cost of failure meaning you want to be able to try a tremendous amount without the failure of uh, uh, experiments really hurting you too badly. And so set up environments where you can experiment, you can fail, you can fail fast, you can try new things and and move forward. And, you know, if you're coming out of college, I want you to, you know, engage incredible tools like Colab and open source, and of course, play around with things like stable diffusion as they come out, in uh, tinker, experiment and learn. Tinker, experiment, and learn. Golden words. No, I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, one of the things that in this revolution, 
powered by AI and data and the, the, the omnipresence of data and stuff is that you don't necessarily have to be just a data scientist or a machine learning engineer to be successful, right? If you're a creative, just go deeper into it. Just embrace technology. Make that part of your fabric. You know, put on that Jarvis suit, right? Or build your own Jarvis suit, right? And I love the way, you know, independent of all of that, just optimize for learning and optimize for fast. And then you learn by experimenting, you learn by failing and, you know, by, by feedback. And so optimize for an environment. I love that Cody said, reduce the cost of failure. That's the way you do it. Uh, Joseph, this has been amazing. Great conversation. I really, really totally enjoyed it. Um, where can the viewers and listeners get in touch with you? Oh, uh, follow my Substack. Uh, it's called Generative AI. It's li- on my LinkedIn page. It's LinkedIn, Perfect. Generative Artificial Intelligence. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I'm very happy to interact with everyone on LinkedIn or otherwise and uh, awesome. provide advice. That's awesome. Joseph, this was a fascinating conversation. I really learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will as well. Thank you so much for taking the time. Ganesh, thank you for hosting. It's been it's been a true pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, I encourage you to do three things. Number one, share with your friends and family. If someone else can learn from this, get inspired and take action, they need to. Number two, subscribe so you do not miss a single episode. You can do it at your favorite podcast location or at youtube.com. Number three, let me know if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for me or my guests. And check out storiesinai.com to access show notes and more resources. Thank you for listening. See you next time.